the process of surgical innovations it's a very it's a very long process it's not like a one year project that you can bring an idea to become a product hi everybody i'm rox de leon and this is episode 14 of a curious character this episode is a conversation with dr philip fuliande in this episode, we dive into Dr. Phillips' motivation for pursuing medicine, from undergraduate education to clinical practice, to pursuing a surgical innovations fellowship, getting involved with UPC Ball, and the potential of biomedical innovations in improving healthcare. Let's get started with this episode. Hi, Dr. Philip. Welcome to A Curious Character. Hello. Hello, Rox. Yeah, thank, thank you, you for accepting <laughs> my invitation to have a basically a recorded conversation. Um, yeah, so, so for today, our conversation will revolve around your introduction to biomedical innovations and how you ended up working with engineers like myself through the UPC World Program. But before we dive into that topic, I thought a good introduction would be for you to tell us a bit about your background. Um, could you tell us a bit about your, maybe your, we can start with your undergraduate story. What did you study for undergrad? And okay. then, yeah, the journey leading to applying for medical school and such. The first choice ko sa UPCAT, sa application, is biology. Huh? Kasi nga, yun ang alam namin, ano, pre-med, pre-med course. So, uh, since high school, since elementary, yun talaga, uh, parang siguro na-indoctrinate sa amin ng mga magulang namin na maganda maging doctor. So, yun. Mula ang high school namin, ano, so, science high school, tapos, pagka-graduate nun, kailangan makapasok ng UP. <laughs> ang napili namin sa, ang napili ko sa UP, kasama ng iba kong mga kaibigan, uh, biology. Kailangan mag- magsulat ka ng, ano eh, ng second choice. Sinulat ko second choice, chemistry. Kaya lang, quota uh, course kasi ang biology that time. So, uh, punong-puno. So, tinapon kami sa chemistry. First year ko sa chemistry, uh, medyo mahirap yung ano eh, may, mahirap din ang chemistry eh. So, so, sabi ko talaga, ang sabi sa amin, mahirap pasok ng medicine pagka pinuloy namin ng chemistry na ano, na undergraduate course. So, uh, we were planning then to shift to biology. Uh, pero uh, shifting to biology was a bit daunting at that time kasi kailangan daw, we need to get uh, a GWA of 1.25 yata to, oh. to, shift, to shift to biology. Uh, my average wasn't cut out to <laughs> to shift to biology, so I stayed in chemistry, hoping na I'd still get into the medical program. Actually, I I love chemistry. Eventually, I love chemistry. I was thinking of I I began to think about options other than going to medicine. Uh, in chemistry, I realized that that there are I have several options. I could be a faculty, a teacher, could take up a, a master's or PhD program in chemistry. So, so that would be the, the researcher, researcher and faculty track. No? Or I can go to industry, 
So there are a lot of uh, local and international industries that are looking for chemistry graduates. No? And of course, there's the the medicine option. So yun yung so undergrad. Why, ano ko. <laughs> so, so why did you end up pursuing, ano, applying to med school in the end? I think it's because going to medicine is really my parents' dream of for me. No? And, and partly, I re- also really wanted to get uh, an MD degree. Oh, wow. Thinking about it, uh, I'm not really sure how how uh, if I came to that decision really just on my own or uh-huh. I was really influenced by so many years of uh, <laughs> my my parents telling me that being a doctor is better. Yeah, but then after after po na you get into medicine, you realize that there are so many specializations that you could go into. So. Another decision that you have to make is what will be my specialization afterwards. Uh, why so, did you choose to to go to your current specialty? Uh, that's also a long, <laughs> long and winding story. Uh, when I got when I I was thinking I I wanted to go to medicine because I wanted to be a doctor for kids. So I wanted to be a pediatrician. But along the way. When we got to uh, our third year or fourth year in medicine, where we're uh, during that time we're go- already going to the clinics, we're exposed to the wards, the outpatient department, the, especially the emergency room. That's when that's the time when I realized I'm not cut out to be a pediatrician. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, I found it difficult to look at sick kids. Uh, I wanted. To play with the kids, no? so of course if they're healthy, you can play with them. But if they're stuck in their beds, they're bedridden. It was uh, it's heartbreaking. No? It's the pediatric ward has a sorry if I if I offend my <laughs> kids kids colleagues. No? Uh, uh, the pediatric ward in the, in the PJH is quite gloomy, especially if, if you'd be taking care of. Uh, the really sick ones, those who are intubated or, or who need special monitoring. Ah, so that's when I decided that maybe I should look for other options after graduating. And that's when we I saw the surgery is uh is my next uh it's my target uh, specialization. So when we graduated. Uh, after the board exam, we thought of uh, applying for the residen- residency programs in the in PGH. So I applied to two programs, surgery and ENT. Uh, during that time, it's a no-no to apply to two departments at the same time. Yeah, your plan of uh, if you want to make sure that you get into a program, that might backfire. Because it's a, it's a small hospital. It's a big hospital, but the, the consultants there don't know each other. So if they knew about you applying to another program, they you might get into trouble. Uh, and it actually did. <laughs> they knew about uh, my application to another department. So they asked me about it during the interview. <laughs> so I, I, I really thought that uh, I might not be able to enter any program during that time. <laughs> but wouldn't it be recommended to put your eggs in multiple baskets? <laughs> That's a, I think that was a good strategy, but, but maybe because there's some sort of a turf war, especially if, the, if you're applying into cutting specialties, surgical specialties. Mm-hmm. 
So they be saying, oh, why are you applying to two programs? Eh, the consultants would like would want now to test your uh, resolve. Mm-hmm. Which one do you really prefer? And when you say you prefer that department, the, the department who's asking you, the other department might might care about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it seems like it's just better to apply for the same specialty in multiple hospitals than in one yes. hospital with multiple yes. specialties. Yes. Okay. Yes. If if you do that, that might be a bigger uh, that that might be a bigger boost to your application to PGH yeah. because the consultants there would see that uh, you're really interested in going to that program. Yeah. What's the hmm. result? What ended up happening after that uh, application? Well, I decided to quit the pre-residency of the other program. I was actually I was already accepted in the surgical uh, program into plastic surgery. But uh, I then decided to uh, go to ENT instead. Isn't surgery for a big parang department? You have neuro, you have ortho, yes. uh-huh. and uh, everyone just enter one general surgery program and then mm-hmm. later on. Uh-huh. So okay. just to correct you, uh, ortho is a different department. It's not oh. under surgery. Uh, so the, the subspecialties in surgery are the general surgeries. Uh, there are three, three divisions in general surgery. Then we have the pediatric surgery, plastic surgery, urology. During mm-hmm. that time, neurosurgery is still under the Department of Surgery. Then we have mm-hmm. the thoracovascular, thoracic and cardiovascular Cardio- surgery, cardiothor- or, or cardiothoracic uh-huh. surgery in other places. Uh, right. What else? Uh, yeah. What about internal medicine? Is it a separate uh, uh, residency also? It's, oh. a, it's a separate residency. It's a non-surgical uh, program. Dr. Jorge is in that. Uh, field in pulmonology. It's an internal medicine subspecialty. Uh-huh. Even the cardiologists, they're internal medicine sub, uh, subspecialists. Is, is it safe to assume that all doctors know how to stitch? Lahat kayo marunong with... Yes. yes. I don't know. That's uh, a, okay. the, basic, okay. the basic principles, yes. Okay, so I think that's a great transition po with my next question, which is your how you got involved with the surgical innovations fellowship. Mm-hmm. Actually, I was interested about learning about that and your start of getting into that program. I think before I went to the MTM program, I've heard about you and Doc Patty. I think yes. from Doc mm-hmm. Louie. So, mm-hmm. interesting transition from you being an ENT and then you go into a surgical fellowship or surgical mm-hmm. innovations fellowship. What was the story behind that? Actually, it's not really that far off from being a surgeon. So, being a surgeon, uh, especially in a resource-poor environment like in PGH back then, uh, you don't have the uh, the complement of instruments. You don't have a complete set of certain instruments. So we tend to innovate in terms of uh, doing stuff, especially in the operating room. We've often tried to improvise with certain tools, if you don't have a particular instrument that's supposed to do that process or or something on a patient, then we try to make one ourselves. But because we don't know that uh, surgical innovation is uh, more of a research field, we, we don't document what we do. So I think uh, surgery has been at the 
forefront of surgical innovation, especially if you find out that most of the instruments available in the operating rooms are named after surgeons. Uh -huh. Most of the, the different instruments, like the instruments that hold tissues or grasp tissues, uh, there are a lot of forms of those types of graspers. And because certain tissues are very delicate than the other parts of the body, so most surgeons tend to find out or they try to devise or fabricate different instruments that would handle their the, the tissues that they're handling better. So over the years, we've developed a lot of instruments in the operating room. And most of these instruments have uh, their eponymous, they're, they're named after surgeons who develop them. Uh, they ask engineers or technicians to fabricate those types of instruments. So, so, uh, so going back to your question about how I got into the program. So Dr. Alberto Rojas and Dr. Acosta, uh, they, um, they wrote a uh, proposal under the Philippine California Advanced Research Picari. Philippine <laughs> California Advanced Research Institute's uh, initiative. The, they, the PICARI had a grant back then. It's a grant under the Commission on Higher Education. So they had, they were able to uh, get a grant for a surgical innovation and an MPM fellowship program. And so the objective of that program is to bring uh, faculty to California, to the University of California, to train under either a surgical innovations fellowship program or the, the master's in translational medicine program. So the master's in translational medicine program was a very competitive. You have to undergo a very competitive um, application. So I decided not to take that uh, <laughs> the track. So so I instead signed up for the surgical innovations fellowship program. But uh, actually, Dr. Alberto Rojas was uh, he he tried to recruit uh, anyone from the different cutting specialties to sign up for the program. So he, um, he spoke in one of our uh, Grand Rounds conference in uh, ENT. And when he, he, he presented the idea, and while he was presenting the idea, all of the consultants, all, the, all of the faculty staff in the department were looking at me. <laughs> oh, why so? Because at that, time, <laughs> at that time, I was the youngest faculty. So that means... If uh, if the department wants to uh, send someone, that would be me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it's a good opportunity back then. So yeah, you can. It's a one-year program in the U.S. Of course, I initially had some reservations go going to the U.S. because I that means I'd be leaving my private practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, so one year would mean that I'd be losing a slot in some of the clinics. So I was worried that I, when I get back, I might not have any clinic to go back to. Well, eventually, I did decide to uh, to go ahead to sign up with, in the program. It's a one-year, it's more of an on-the-job training in surgical innovation research under Dr. Harrison, Michael Harrison. Of, what, uh, the year, Department what year of was this? What year was that this? That was one? in 2016. Okay, so 2017. Uh, yeah. 
So it was uh, hmm. ah, it was almost five years ago. Wow. So we were <laughs> ah, almost ah, exactly about exactly five years ago. I didn't look at that from that perspective. Um, I, I, I think that's an interesting perspective that you hmm. gave me about joining a fellowship. Because yeah. the first time that I heard about that, the well, I, I knew about the Surgical Innovation Fellowship and like, okay, this is for, for medical doctors and such. And, and, and from my perspective, if uh, such an opportunity lands to you, they'll just grab it. But I didn't realize that you also have to think about your private practice, establish so-and-so, leave your family and, and such. So, yeah, that's an interesting point <laughs> that I think... Yeah, I wouldn't consider because I'm young and you know mm-hmm. basically don't have don't have much responsibilities yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. so During those times, most of the time, most most uh, doctors would go out of the country for fellowships right after uh, residency training because they mm-hmm. they haven't set up any clinics yet, and it's the best time to go out. They're fresh out of training. Uh, they're still most re- uh, residency graduates are still eager to learn, mm-hmm. but in my case, I was already practicing. Uh, I've already settled down. I already had a family back then when we started the surgical innovations program. So it's a really tough decision to make. So what happened during that fellowship? During that one year, what did you do at UCSF? Mm-hmm. Well. I saw that where the Philippines is really behind <laughs> in 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 device innovation. Uh, maybe we're at par with other countries in terms of drug discovery, clinical trials for drugs, but in terms of uh, surgical innovation as a research and as a as a means of translating basic knowledge to clinical applications. We're quite far behind, but in terms of uh, problems and ideas, I think we're not that uh, we're not that far mm-hmm. off. Uh, you have a, you have a lot of more problem. problems. Yeah. Yes, we have more problems. It's just <laughs> that we did not know that we have the resources to be able to address those problems. And uh, California, uh, in San Francisco. In which is quite near Silicon Valley, it's a uh, it's a tech innovation. It's it has a very mature technology innovation uh, environment. So doing surgical innovations, doing innovations in technology was is uh, it's really um, it's easy for it's easy for doctors to to do that those kinds of uh, activities in the U.S., especially in the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they have a lot of money to spend. And they're not worried about spending or investing in innovations. Yeah, exactly. And it's easy. It's relatively easy to find potential investors mm-hmm. who are willing to put this technology mm-hmm. to market. Mm-hmm. And you can mm-hmm. always have your startup you know, be acquired by like Medtronic, Abbott, or Genentech, or these big companies yes. uh, in the Silicon Valley area. And they're always so, on the lookout, actually, Yeah. Mm-hmm. for innovations. Yeah, I remember there is one building in UCSF that's called Genentech. The Genentech mm-hmm. building. So just just goes to show how much they've invested in 
mm-hmm. poured money to the research being done in the in the university. What did you do during the fellowship? Like, did mm-hmm. you uh, work on a certain project, or how was it like? Yes, we were. Uh, the moment we got into San Francisco, into the university, uh, we were already joining the Dr. Harrison's team in their meetings, in their research team meetings, talking about uh, various projects. And during our stay there, Katiko and I, we were already assigned to uh, 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 Dr. Harrison's research team. Uh, uh, they they were really uh, they were really inclusive in that uh, we were not just treated as observers. Mm-hmm. They let us participate in their research in their research activities. Uh, I was given a a team assignment as a visiting researcher in in an IRB submission for one of the research trials. So. Wow. It's really, it's really a hands-on training in um, surgical innovations or biomedical innovations research. So I was very lucky to see how a research idea was brought from paper to the bench to the clinics. And that really molded how we wrote how the CBOL program was going to be defined the, actually, the, really, the experience in in San Francisco really enlightened me and Kathy that uh, the process of surgical innovations it's a very it's a very long process. It's not like a one year project that you can bring an idea to become a product. There we saw that uh, most of the projects that we were involved in, it's most of these devices are already in their fifth to tenth year uh, being developed and most of the, the the hurdles that they encounter are in the clinical the clinical trials part they were able to publish papers about uh, their proof of concept the animal studies cadaveric studies for some projects that did not need any animal studies anymore uh, they were able to publish those in one to two years from designing the products but being able to jump from the laboratory to the clinics, that was a really long, long and hard process for them. Too, too many regulatory uh, hurdles to overcome. And just like what we're encountering now in COVID researches, the proponents, the innovators really have to prove that their products are safe, that their products are really effective before the FDA can allow them to proceed with uh, marketing the device or even for the university institutional research board uh, ethics board to approve any clinical research involving human subjects so I'm, I'm curious what the team composition is like in that uh, research group looking at their team it's it was really uh, an eye-opener for me because the surgery department, of course, you'd be you'd expect surgeons to be in the department. But when you look at their roster, they have uh, basic scientists in their faculty roster. They have engineers in their faculty roster. And that's department of department surgery. of surgery. Yes, oh, wow. yes. So uh, within the department, they have 
They, they have teaching duties. They have service duties for the hospital. And they have a research component, of course. And that research component, they have in-house basic scientists, PhD holders, non-doctors, engineers. So they don't have to talk to the College of Engineering because UCSF, I don't think they do. The process of surgical innovations, it's a very, it's a very long process. It's not like a one-year project that you can bring an idea to become a product. They don't have a College of Engineering in UCSF, but mm-hmm. most of their engineers, when they meet with engineers, they're in Berkeley. But they're... Their, their research teams are not composed of faculty, engineering faculty from Berkeley. They hire, their, they have in-house engineers in their department. So surgical innovation was really, uh, it's a well-run, well-oiled component of their department. And, and UC Berkeley and UCSF actually have a, I think it's very analogous to UP Manila and UP Diliman in a sense that they are both public universities also and one is health focus and the other is uh, sciences and the arts um, but one advantage like what you said of UCSF is having also having engineering faculty and you know experts with basic science background in within their campus within their reach so one thing that they are implementing is the joint bioengineering PhD program within Berkeley and UCSF mm-hmm. and the MTM also is joint between Berkeley and UCSF and that's how I, I got to get a bit of a glimpse of how the, you know, the Surgical Innovations Lab in San Francisco General. So I've been there a couple of times testing phantoms and such for my capstone. But it's an interesting, it was an interesting perspective just seeing in a single laboratory, you have people who know how to pipette things, how to use the pipette things. And then you have electrical engineers who know how to solder stuff. They're like, yeah. It's, Just in one it's laboratory. An, yeah. In, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's very uh, exciting. We tend to daydream. Like, oh, sa Philippines kayo. <laughs> yes. Hopefully, we can do that. Yeah, exactly. Now, moving moving forward to how many years later, um, getting in, with you getting involved with UPC Ball. How did that start? Was that like immediately after your fellowship? You started crafting with Doc Ewang and the others the soon-to-be mm-hmm. UPC Ball program. What's the history behind it? Well, uh, so after my surgical innovations fellowship, uh, I also I was also involved in another uh, Picari project, another biomedical innovation project. Uh, I'm not sure if you've heard about the uh, Hearing for Life, the HELIP project of uh, Dean Chong, Dr. Portia Marcelo, and Professor Luis Sison. It was really based on, actually, it was born out of a meeting with uh, Professor Season, because I was also in, involved with the National Telehealth before I was involved in the Surgical Innovations Program. I actually was uh, an MS Health Informatics student <laughs> before I got into Surgical Innovations. I was able to finish the, <laughs> the courses, the core courses. I actually finished the, all of the subjects except for the thesis. Because I was a clinician, I'm also, and I was busy with uh, doing in private pra- practice back then. I really didn't have the time to finish the, the thesis. And doing a thesis in UP Manila, it's really uh, time-consuming. Going forward, moving uh, kind of fast forward, I was also working with the National Telehealth Center as a, I was the domain expert for ENT, for the doctor's, 
to, to the barrios. So they had the telemedicine program for the doctors to the barrios. So I was a domain expert. So eventually they were working on the RX box. I'm not directly involved with the RX box, but, but they were looking for new projects to do. So I was in one of their meetings and Prof. Season where I was presenting their prototypes, the several uh, projects that may have uh, clinical applications. And I think I mentioned that one one problem for ENT is the newborn hearing screening. I think he was already also looking at that line. I think they already had a, an acoustic auditory brainstem response, response. Yes. Uh, project going on, and it's and they were able to do to go to that uh, go with that project because they've already developed the ECG component of the RX box. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. They wanted to broaden the functionalities of RxBox, so we 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 thought of oh maybe we can do a an ABR device, not just a newborn hearing screening device, but an actual diagnostic device for hearing evaluation. We were talking about writing a proposal, but of course, since there was no funding that we can submit that, uh, we we it took took us so long to get it together. Then came the Picari call for uh, collaboration with uh, UC in any campus in the University of, of California. So I think Doc Porsche got a call from Prof. Season and another engineer. Uh, and they were, they were already talking with a, a researcher from the University of California. So they were thinking about a telehealth project. And then they looked me in their email. And then I mentioned that maybe we can do a biomedical device project with the newborn hearing screening in mind. And I think they liked the idea because Prof. Season has one project. The, the hero, is that the hero? Yeah, yeah, the hero that project. project. Yeah, we, we went to the ear unit, the PGH, uh-huh. interviewing the nurse and such. Yeah, so that's the I think humble it's, it's already a working <laughs> prototype, right? Back then. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. So when he mentioned that, and I and I thought about the newborn hearing screening law, that Dean Chong was having a hard time uh, making sure that the reporting of the newborn hearing screening would uh, would increase by I think it was passed in 2009, 2010. But in 2015, the the database for the newborn hearing screening wasn't really populated that much. I think they already they just had less than 20% of the database filled in. So they wanted something that would fill the gap. So that's when the Hearing for Life project was born. Actually, it's not just a product innovation. It's also a telemedicine innovation project. So that's why Dr. Porsche was also involved. I think it took us two weeks to write. Wow. Mm-hmm. And nice. I, was, I wasn't going to the clinic during that time <laughs> just to finish that. The, the narrative and the budget for that project. So that was a project that we had concurrently with my Surgical Innovations Fellowship. When I signed up for the Surgical Innovations Fellowship of Dr. Alberto Rojas, it was also the time when we, we were notified by DUST that our Hearing for Life proposal was also uh, approved. Yes. So I think the Surgical Innovations and the MTM uh, program was uh, cycle one. Is that I think it's a cycle one, Picari cycle one project. Mm-hmm. Our ABR project was, uh, I think it's a cycle two. So the project was already approved when I was already in the US. 
And I think it, it was fortunate that I was involved in two Picari projects because that meant that I was already in the U.S. So I can already meet with one of the researchers in our research project who's mm-hmm. actually just in a nearby campus. Uh, well, it's not really nearby, but it's in <laughs> Berkeley. In Berkeley. It's a BART ride away. I guess it, it helped that I was also in, a, in the Surgical Innovations Fellowship Program because I was able to... We were able to consult the Surgical Innovations Group, the Pediatric consor- uh, Device, device Consortium, yeah. about our project. And we were actually invited to one of the meetings of the Pediatric Device Consortium to present our the Hearing for Life project. I think it was in 2016 also that our team for the Hearing for Life project uh, visited UCSF to present our, our idea. Wow. So that's like the introduction to... Biomedical innovations mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And after that, because of because the Hearing for Life project was a two-year project, so it took most of our time. So I wasn't able to work on Dr. Rojas's plan to uh, make the inno- uh, surgical innovation a college program. So they wanted Kathy and I to work on that project. So sort of institutionalize it in the College of Medicine or in UP Manila. So we finished the Hearing for Life project in 2018. and But back then, we were already planning to get another funding for the second phase of the project. So that meant I we weren't able to work on the surgical innovation program for UP Manila. But uh, I, I, I think Dean Chong was impressed on about how we were able to collaborate with the College of Engineering to create a product. If, even if we were able, we were just able to create a, just a prototype. I think Dean Chong realized that it's a doable research. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something that uh, UP Manila, uh, UP, the UP College of Medicine, can be a pioneer in. So I think in a separate conversation or meeting with the dean, Dr. Wang was tra- was uh, pitching a uh, skills laboratory project. Uh, he wasn't talking about a biomedical innovation program back then. But Dr. Wang actually wanted a surgical and an advanced surgical skills laboratory where orthopedic surgeons can they can conduct postgraduate courses to demonstrate certain skills to new surgical or sur- new uh, orthopedic uh, surgery graduates. And I think it was that time that uh, the dean realized that Dr. Wang can combine the skills laboratory with a biomedical device innovation laboratory. And, and that's when the dean looped me in with the, her conversation with Dr. Wang. They asked me if we can write something that can merge a biomedical uh, laboratory with a skills laboratory. So that's how Sibol was born. Actually, Sibol, was, Sibol is not the original name for the program. Maybe... It, Maybe an interview with Dr. Wang would, uh, yeah. <laughs> make, uh, would be a good idea for you to bring that up. I think Dr. Wang was already pitching his ideas since 2018. Mm-hmm. And so in 2019, so I was, uh, was looked in with uh, Dr. Wang's uh, team. So that's the, that was the time when we started to write the, the concept for what's going to be Seabol. I think it's all also started in April also in, of 2019. Uh, we were planning to uh, submit the, the proposal to the OST because the call for proposals with a bigger budget, uh, the OST announces that 
as early as April and they always have a deadline. So I think we were about to miss that de- deadline because we, we were thinking of a very ambitious project. So we had, a, I think our budget was uh, 100,000. So 100 million? Sorry, 100 million. We thought that we might not get we might we might not meet the deadline. We tried to get in touch with Dr. Montoya, Montoya to to make sure that we can we can still apply for a grant for that much that much money. During the first presentation of the project, we were shut down <laughs> because Lasalle already has a an innovation laboratory. Uh, it's mm-hmm. also DST funded, and DST wanted did did not want to duplicate another project. And because we were really insistent about pushing for our program, we attended a meeting with the USD to be, parang they, they wanted to create niche uh, centers for innovation, product innovation, because they realized that the LSU wanted more of the robotics. They're more on the robotics and prosthetics side of innovation. And because of that, Dr. Wang and I decided that we can concentrate more on the surgical innovations so that's why we named our project uh, Surgical Innovations Laboratory and eventually named it into CBOL. So it's a Surgical Innovation and Biotechnology Laboratory. So the biotechnology part, I, I'm not sure if we're at that level already, but a lot of faculty in the in UP Manila and Piliman can handle biotechnology stuff. Yeah. And with, with the proximity with NIH also... Yes. Hopefully, the future mm-hmm. gather more faculty to, mm-hmm. you know, work with more interdisciplinary groups. Mm-hmm. And I feel like mm-hmm. with with the uh, journey that you've shared so far, one common denominator is you you meet people and then find and then encounter these opportunities that could open you to, to something that maybe you did not expect, like starting all the way from with choosing between ENT and surgery and then landing back to somehow to surgical innovations and i think one one takeaway that i got from your story was how even though you're all clinicians medicine is very big and people will meet each other it's not only engineers meet the doctors but it's uh, the doctors in their own specialty gather to a single platform and the engineers in their own specialty gather to that platform also and then you come up with something like upc ball where everyone would be working together, hopefully in the future. And maybe to wrap up this conversation. So I have these three things that I asked people uh, that I invited the podcast. So first would be, what would be your advice to medical students who want to get into biomedical innovation? Um, biomedical innovation is really, uh, it's a young field in the Philippines, but it's certainly in, in the history of medicine, it's really not a new thing. If you read the history of the different subspecialties, uh, how medicine grew, how surgery grew out of uh, the field of barbers, you'd realize that doctors have been doing medical innovation ever since medicine was born into a, became a profession. It's just that we don't know how to make these innovations possible. Certainly, even as a student, you can always you would already uh, witness problems in the clinics, in the operating room, in the hospital, and you you'd have ideas on how to solve those problems. Maybe my advice to, to the students would be they shouldn't think that being in a clinical field should stop them from 
making or thinking about innovations. You may not be able to fabricate those innovations yourselves, but you will realize that uh, there are a lot of people who, who can do that for you. It's just that you have to look for them in the right places. And hopefully, once we sustain CBOL, once we were able to continue our the efforts of doing biomedical research in the Philippines, even just in the college, looking for these people would not be very difficult anymore. I think that that that's the that's the only hurdle that you need to overcome. You don't need to do all the innovations yourselves. Uh, not all clinicians are born to be engineers as well, and we shouldn't take away that specialization from the engineers <laughs> they know a lot more you may have the basic ideas but there are a lot of people who can do those things better than us it's more of building a team than doing things yourself mm-hmm. okay. uh, i'm not sure if i was able to answer your yeah. <laughs> that yes <question>. yes <laughs> so my second question would be what would be your tips or advice for for engineers who would like to work with health or with clinicians how should we approach mm-hmm. you? Um, you know, how uh, do we, we solve problems together? In my experience, watching how the research teams in UCSF uh, work on problems, uh, the clinicians present the problems, and the engineers are they they listen intently. Okay, they wait for you to finish your presentation before they ask anything. So what I understand about engineers is that they want to see the problem not just in the microscopic level, but they wanted they want a more a bigger picture of your problem. They want more context. They want specifics, but they want to look at uh, the, to see the context of your problem. That's when that's when I realized that the way we think as doctors, it's not really different on how engineers think. Uh, it's just that they understand more engineering problems better. So when we are faced with engineering problems, it's really hard for clinicians to solve that. But it's I it's it's an easy task for engineers, and engineers can think of a lot of ways to solve a problem. Maybe for my message for the engineers, it's. Just do what you do. You don't have to unlearn many things. Uh, whatever you, whatever your professors taught you in engineering school, whenever you talk to doctors, apply those, apply those skills, your methodology. Most doctors might be stubborn. <laughs> they might be thinking that you're wasting too much time thinking about a problem, a small problem. But when, if once we see how you uh, present your solution, then we most clinicians would realize, oh, I never realized that uh, we can look at that problem in that perspective and we can solve it that way. So just always wear your engineering hat. You don't have to think like doctors. Thinking like doctors might cause problems in how you handle your problem-solving methodologies. I've witnessed that in how our heli group developed our product. The clinicians would just present what we need, and then the, clini- the researchers would design. Maybe the the inputs that that would matter would be the presentation of the product, how the users will be able to interact with the product. That's those are the. But I I, I know that it's also in the realm of engineering, especially industrial engineering, and how users. Uh, interact with a with a certain product. In summary, your advice would be for engineers to be, you know, be really good at what you do, 
Yes. But at be the that, same time, be yeah, be able to communicate with people from different fields. Yes. Ah, I needed, yes. I need, right? <laughs> you should be able to communicate your what you wanted to say, your engineering, <laughs> the engineering terms to non-engineers. Uh, that's also our problem, how to communicate clinical terms to engineers. That's Those are two skills that we have to work on. <laughs> right. And that's actually where the biomedical engineers would come in. They are like the hybrids. And we're not, we're not yet thinking about the business side of uh, the product. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So my, my last question would be, it's just, I just said, what's next? So maybe we can talk about where do you think biomedical innovations is going or what's next mm. for UPC Ball? Well, I think when you talk about biomedical innovations in UP Manila and the UP College of Medicine, I think it's here to stay. There's no other way but to move forward, to make bigger projects. And and we witnessed this when the pandemic hit. The core people of Siebel were able to meet the challenge of designing, think, uh, developing products that would uh, address the problems of, of the pandemic. So I think we've already, the Siebel has already uh, proven its uh, capacity to write grants, to produce ideas. And maybe what's missing is... Uh, Oh, we've already proven that we can create products. There are already Siebel products uh, that's ready to uh, for testing. What's missing is the uh, marketability, I think, the readiness of the technology to be marketed. Maybe in terms of biomedical engineering terms, we have that, that TRLs, the technological yeah. readiness level. Readiness level. In my opinion, we're at level 5. Is that yeah. the right assessment? Yeah, could be. Yeah, uh, we have a working uh, prototype and yes, it's uh, getting ready for scale up. Uh, yes. I think the scaling up of the products is the major challenge because we have the research labs, we have the research faculties, but we lack the manufacturing environment, I think. Mm-hmm. We have industry partners, but they're limited in my, uh, in my opinion, Unlike in the U.S. where most of the big big names in innovations and medical device manufacturing, they're, they're there. In the yeah. Philippines, most of the manufacturing units here are third-party manufacturers. They don't have the capacity to market whatever products they produce. They can manufacture your products, but they won't buy the license to produce those products and market them. I think that's uh, what's missing in the Philippines. The only option would be to create a startup to produce the capital to to market, to bankroll the production of those devices. Uh, It's easy to look for the manufacturers who can produce them, but the big problem would be the... Yeah, supply chain and and sustaining it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and being able to tie in a brand that would carry the, the product to the market. Well, this has been a great conversation, Dr. Philip. Thank you so much for taking the time to share a bit about your experiences and mga pangaral. <laughs> I, I hope I, I was able to make sense out of uh, whatever I'm saying. <laughs> that is it for this chat. If you like this episode or would like to suggest a future topic, let me know by sending me a quick message. I'm always looking for interesting conversations and hope to share more similar stories in the future. My Twitter handle is at rocksalt, that's R-O-X-S-A-L-T. You may also send me an email at rocksalt.acc at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in and see you in the next one.